Chapter 12 of Mildred at Rosens by Martha Finley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Amy. Chapter 12. O Credulity, Security's Blind Nurse, The Dream of Fools. Mason. Mrs. Dinsmore carried out her plan of filling her house with company during the holidays. They were mostly young people, and the time was spent in a constant round of festivities. In these, Mildred bore some share, for she thought it right that she should do her part in entertaining her aunt's guests. Nor did her conscience forbid her innocent recreation at proper times and seasons, though she could not consent to make mere amusement the business of her life. Some half-dozen or more of the neighboring gentry were invited for the whole fortnight, while others came for an evening, a day, or two or three days, and on Christmas Eve and New Year's night large parties were given. It was on the latter occasion that Mildred noticed among the guests, for the first time, a handsome man, apparently about thirty years of age, who was an entire stranger to her. His broadcloth and linen were of the finest. A magnificent solitaire diamond adorned the little finger of his right hand. He wore an imperial and heavy mustache, and something foreign in his look and manner, as well as the fact that he seemed to be paying assiduous court to Juliet, suggested to Mildred the probability that he was the Count de Lisle, of whom she had heard her make such frequent mention. She was not long left in doubt as to that, for the next moment Reba whispered his name in her ear, adding, "'Juliet is in the seventh heaven, of course.' "'There is something sinister in the expression of his face,' thought Mildred, turning away. "'I do not like it, yet it is strangely familiar, too. Or can I possibly have seen it before?' His attention had been attracted to her, and he inquired of Juliet, "'Who is that pretty girl in pink and white?' "'Pretty!' returned Miss Marsden, with a scornful toss of the head. I cannot say that I admire her style. She is a Miss Keith, a sort of faraway niece of Uncle Dinsmore, a northern girl, and poor, I imagine, for her father is a country lawyer with a large family. Juliet was absolutely ignorant of Mr. Keith's circumstances, but it suited her plans to make it appear that she was no heiress, quite her own inferior in the matter of wealth, whatever she might be in looks. Do not be offended, my angel, he whispered, bending over her, and speaking with a slightly foreign accent, which she had again and again extolled to Reba as perfectly delicious. I meant not that she was half so beautiful or charmant as yourself. Ah, oh, Count, you are a sad flatterer, she returned with a simper. No, no, pardon the contradiction, Miss Juliet, but the truth is never flattery. A penny for your thoughts, Miss Keith, said a voice at Mildred's side. Ah, good evening, Mr. Landreth, she answered, turning toward the speaker. You are welcome to them, gratis. I am wondering where I have seen Miss Marsden's admirer before to-night, or if it is only a resemblance, real or fancied, to someone else that I see in him. I cannot tell, indeed, he said furtively, watching the man for a moment. But there is something in his face that would make me sorry to see him ingratiating himself with a lady friend of mine. Excuse me, but I must ask you to move, as we are going to dance, and want this sofa behind you put out of the way, said Reba, coming up to them with two servants. Certainly, Mildred said, taking Mr. Landreth's offered arm. They passed down the room and out into the conservatory beyond. Are you engaged for the first set? he asked. No, nor for any other, she answered with a smile. I do not dance, Mr. Landreth. It is not too late to begin, he remarked persuasively. No, it is too soon. You don't think it wrong, he queried, as in surprise. Here in your home, as it were? It's different, is it not, from attending a ball? Yes, but I might grow so fond of it as to want to go to balls. I think it's safest for me to avoid the temptation. 
Sets were forming as they returned to the drawing-room, and Miss Worth, who had been sent for to play the piano, was just entering by another door. She had kept apart from the guests, spending almost all her time in her own room, so that Mildred had seen very little of her for some days past. She noticed in the instant of her entrance that she was looking pale and worn, then that her pallor suddenly increased to ghastliness, as on stepping in she came suddenly face to face with Juliet and the Count in the nearest set, standing side by side. He, too, started slightly and turned pale for a moment, as his eyes met those of the governess, but neither spoke, and pushing hastily past him, she sat down at the instrument. She felt herself reeling in her seat, and thought she should fall to the floor. Everything seemed to be turning round, but conquering her emotion by a great effort, she ran her fingers over the keys and dashed off into a lively dancing tune. Her head was in a whirl, a mist swam before her eyes, so that she could not see the notes, but her fingers flew so fast that the dancers were soon panting for breath in their efforts to keep pace with the music. "'Not so fast! Not so fast!' cried several voices. But though for an instant she slackened her speed, the next she was rattling on as before. Set after set had been danced, Juliet and the Count taking part in them all, and now he led her panting to a seat. "'I not like those tunes so well as some other,' he remarked. "'May I claim the privilege to speak to the player that she choose something else, and not play quite so rapid?' "'Oh, yes, certainly,' smiled Juliet sweetly. Miss Worth was turning over her music in search of a waltz someone had called for, when a voice spoke at her side, a voice that made her start and shiver, but she did not look round. "'Your execution was one little bit too rapid for us,' it said in an ordinary tone, then in a whisper the lips close to her ear. "'Meet me half an hour after the company disperses, behind the clump of evergreens at the foot of the avenue.' "'Yes,' she answered, almost under her breath, and without so much as turning her head. She saw as in a nightmare a white hand, too large to be a woman's, with a solitary diamond sparkling on the fourth finger, busied among the sheets of music before her. Then it vanished, her strained ear catching the faint echo of the retreating step. She kept her eyes on her notes, her fingers wandering mechanically over the keys, calling forth low, soft strains of music, while the dancers passed out into the refreshment room. She kept it up unceasingly until they returned then changed to a waltz in obedience to directions, as couples began taking their places on the floor. How long it lasted she did not know. It seemed an age of suffering to her, before she found herself again alone in the solitude of her own room. As she entered, the clock on the mantel struck two. She glanced at it and sank into a chair by the fire. Half an hour, she sighed, shivering and crouching over the blaze. What an age to wait, and yet I'm afraid not long enough to let them all get to bed and asleep. What if I should be seen? She dropped her face into her hands with a low groan. It was some minutes before she lifted it again for another glance at the clock, a wan, weary, haggard face, full of dread and distress, but with no tears in the burning eyes. Slowly the moments dragged themselves along, till at last the minute hand pointed to the half-hour. When she rose, wrapped herself in a dark, large shawl, putting it over her head, listened at her door for a moment, to make sure that all was quiet, then glided softly down the stairs, let herself out at a back door, and creeping along close to the wall of the house, then in the shadow of the trees that lined the avenue, gained at length the clump of evergreens at its farther end. A biting north wind swept the hard, frozen ground, and rustled the dry leaves at her feet, as she stood leaning against a tree in an intensely listening attitude. It seemed to pierce to her very vitals, and shuddering and trembling with the cold and nervous dread, she drew the shawl more closely about her while straining her eyes through the gloom to catch a glimpse of him whom she had come to meet, 
for there was no light save that shining in the winter sky. She had waited but a moment when a stealthy step drew near, and a tall form wrapped in a cloak stood before her. Here first, he said in a cautious whisper. Yes, she answered in the same low key, and with a sudden catching of her breath. Why are you here? For my own advantage, he answered half defiantly, and, in a threatening tone, you'd better have a care how you betray me. I've no desire to do so, she returned with a weary sigh. But you must go, and at once. He will ruin me if you stay. You must see that. Pooh! I see no such thing, and must is a word you have no right to use to me. Keep your mouth shut, and all will go well. What is your object in coming here? Plain enough, I should think, he answered with a sneer. You are deceiving that silly girl, and intend to marry her simply for her money. Exactly. Who needs money more than I? And how long will it take you to squander it? Depends on how much there is, he returned with a sardonic laugh. And your luck at the gaming table, I presume, she said bitterly. You are acting most dishonorably toward the girl. She would not look at you if she knew that I am an American-born citizen, eh? Well, am I any the worse for that? Not for that, not in my esteem, but you know. You know that is not all, nor the worst by a great deal, she cried in a tone of suppressed agony. And you ask me to stand by and see you deceive this girl to her ruin, never stretching out a finger for her help. I cannot do it. I will not. Go, go. You must. You must never show your face here again. Be quiet, he said angrily, for in her excitement she had raised her voice to a dangerously high pitch. And look at home, he went on. Remember that you are partly responsible for my ruin, and that you too are sailing under false colors. But not to the injury of anyone, not with any evil intent, she answered, clasping her hands beseechingly. And if you drive me from here, Harry, you'll be taking the bread out of our mother's mouth. It is surely enough that you do nothing for her support yourself. I'll help with that when I've secured this girl and her money, he said with an evil laugh. Just you keep quiet and all will go well. Keep my secret and I'll keep yours. She leaned back wearily against the tree, clasping her hands more tightly over her throbbing heart. Tears sprang to her eyes, her lips trembled, but no sound came from them. Well? he cried impatiently. Harry, she said very low and tremulously, I have been reading a good deal lately in an old book, one whose teachings we used to respect in our innocent childhood. And it tells me that the way of transgressors is hard, that though hand join in hand the wicked shall not be unpunished that there is such a thing as sinning away your day of grace. And it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. O Harry, turn from your wicked ways before it is forever too late. There is mercy even for you if you will turn now. Spellbound with astonishment, he had heard her thus far in absolute silence, but now he interrupted her with a savage oath. I didn't know you'd turned pious, he sneered, and I didn't come here to be preached to. If you know what's good for you, you'll keep quiet. That's all I have to say. And now I'm off. I can't stand here catching my death of cold. He was turning away, but she grasped a fold of his cloak. Harry, she said in a choking voice, we used to be fond of each other. I was very proud of my handsome brother, and, and we've been parted for five years. That's true, Gertie, he said in a softened tone, turning back and throwing an arm about her waist. Let's kiss and be friends. Harry, she whispered, clinging to him. Do you know anything of, of him? No, and don't want to, he answered savagely. You're not fool enough to care for him now. Women are fools, was all she said in reply. And they parted, he disappearing in the direction of the road, and she creeping back to the house, regaining the shelter of her room, fortunately without meeting anyone on the way. She was tired, oh, so tired, her strength scarcely sufficient to bring her to the desired haven. 
but even there she could not rest. She did not undress or lie down, but crouched beside the fire, her hands clasped about her knees, her head bowed upon her breast, while the monotonous ticking of the clock told off the weary seconds, and the smoldering embers burned out, leaving nothing but the cold ashes on the hearth. End of chapter 12 Recording by Amy